0: Thomas, since we spoke three weeks ago, I think, uh, much has happened in Algeria. A number of crucial figures peeled off of Bouteflika, including the chief of staff of the army. And then finally, two days ago, the president officially resigned as of April 28th, if I'm not mistaken, bringing Mm -hmm. his 20-year rule to an end, along with the promise of presidential elections after a three-month transition period. A lot has happened, and yet the people of Algeria are still in the streets. Mm -hmm. Why, after this ostensible victory, why are the people still in the streets as if nothing had happened?
1: Well, things have happened, for sure. And I think that people in the streets are acknowledging that they actually managed to defeat Bouteflika. So this is a victory, as as you have said. It's clearly a, a major victory, but it's a victory. It's one battle. And... A revolution is also, in a way, long-term offensive against the political order. It's a real war that they are trying to win right now. And this is the first major victory, maybe not the first one, actually, because the first major victory was the simple fact of being massively in the streets to demonstrate the fact that the regime is not the only alternative in Algeria, that there is a people that is very much alive. No, Bouteflika resigned, and that's a major victory again. People will be in the streets tomorrow, Friday, because they want much more. They want the total defeat of the system, of the nizam, of the regime. And it implies that a lot of people have to go after Bouteflika.
0: As per the Algerian constitution, the three-month transition period leading to the presidential election is to be conducted by an old regime hand and the head of the Senate who's been there in this position for the past 17 years, by the name of Abdul Qadir bin Saleh. Tell us who he is, and can he be really trusted, or is this a case of putting a
1: fox in charge of the chicken coop? That's a pretty good way to put it. The question of trust at this point is, I feel, in a way irrelevant, because these members of the old ruling elite are, in essence, completely discredited. So there is no trust. The people cannot trust somebody like Ben Salah, they cannot trust somebody like Bedoui, the prime minister, or they cannot trust somebody like uh, Tayyip Belahiz, the head of the constitutional council. All of these figures of the old, the the ancient regime are in a sense compromised. And uh, somebody like Ben Salah in particular, he has been fierce supporter of Bouteflika until the end. When the army decided to uh, follow its own path and to protect its own vested interest, Ben Salah was still here. When the RND, is political party, the National Democratic Rally bailed out and started to express its desolidization, Ben Salah was still here. So he's somebody who has been part of Bouteflika's family for a very long time. He's definitely a member of the ancient regime and there is no trust. There is no reason for the Algerian people to think that this man will at any moment meet their demands, and protect their interests. That's very clear.
0: So for the next three months, the military seems to be in charge right behind Ben Salah. How do you see the role of the military? You know, here in America, they say the military when they mean the army. In Algeria, we say the army, the same thing. How do you see the role of the military when it really in the past had such a fraught and, and difficult and painful checkered past, shall we say, How do you see them operating behind the scenes?
1: First of all, I think that it's fair to say that what they have been doing over the last uh, two weeks was pretty outspoken. They were actually uh, intervening publicly uh, in the media and Gaid Salah when he realized that Bouteflika was in a way uh, impossible to save. I mean, intervened in the media and made it clear that he was in favor of his uh, departure, of his resignation. So the army has played a very ambiguous role. I think that it's important to say that the army has not won. The army, or at least the high-ranking military officer, have not won the battle. They have lost, and they are trying to minimize their defeat because they have been supporters of Bouteflika. Somebody like Gaid Salah, as an Asian activist uh, recently said on a French radio program, was married with the Bouteflika family for 20 years. So Gait Salah played this card until a a certain moment and realized that since they were losing, he might as well uh, minimize his loss. So the high ranking officers in the army right now are playing a partition that is very defensive Partition, they want the Algerian people to come back into some kind of constitutional path in order to limit the consequences of this revolution. This is a very reactionary strategy. At the same time, and it's also important to emphasize this second element, the army is historically legitimate to intervene politically in Algeria. They have a revolutionary history and they have a a duty to protect both the nation and the people and the state. So the intervention of the army is at the same time and this is kind of contradictory legitimate in the sense that the army is an institution perceived as being above the political field of the political game that is in charge of protecting the whole nation and a very private institution controlled by a bunch of military officers, high ranking officers, generals who are protecting their personal interests. These two aspects are uh, to be taken in consideration
0: we have seen how democratic institutions anywhere including in this country are vulnerable against entrenched interests and corrupt power elites uh, certainly this country is in the thick of a, a major major situation how strong or fragile are Algerians institutions uh, right now they've been wedded to the regime how do they stand currently Can they deliver a legitimate
1: transition as they stand right now? That's a very good and difficult question. How strong are the institutions in Algeria? They are both weak and pretty strong. They are weak because they have been controlled by various social groups that were mainly interested in their own interest in protecting their own position and benefiting from the status quo in various ways. So they have been appropriated and privatized. There is no no question about that. Everybody knows in Algeria that the state has been privatized. So because of that, institutions are weak because they face what we call an institutional crisis and their official objective and their hidden objective are in contradiction, they are opposite. And this creates a weakness, this creates a lack of legitimacy. At the same time, the state and the institutions are pretty strong, because let's not overlook the fact that for the past six years, Algeria was basically without a president. They had a living dead man in El Moradia and the country still stands. The government was able to manage daily affairs. So the government on the, on the institutions work. They work and they can manage a country. The question is, who is going to be in charge? And here you have, if you want, the most difficult aspect of the problem, the most tricky dimension of the Algerian configuration, is that those who are historically in charge of managing the state, that is to say the technocracy, are pillars of the regime. They are pillars of the regime, they have been pillars of all the different forms of the regime over the last 60 years. Technocrats are right now uh, controlling the government. The Bedouin government is a government of technicians, of public servants, high-ranking public servants. Well, these people are at the same time completely, I would say, compromised, and yet they are essential. Essential to uh, make sure that the state can function and that the transition that is going to happen... Uh, will happen in an orderly uh, manner, especially from the economic perspective, because there is obviously an economic uh, aspect in the, in the transition. So uh, this is why the situation, the current situation, is completely contradictory. The people in charge of delivering the transition are impossible to be trusted, and yet essential.
0: So a little bit what happened in Tunisia as well, uh, before Algeria. 2011, they were not capable of removing the old clique. And they're still having the same old problems they, they've had
1: for a long time. But just to be clear, I think that history is pretty telling. This is not a process of de-nazification or de-basification. Right. You can just, like, purge the states. And when you purge the states in Germany after World War II or in Iraq after the invasion of 2003, well, terrible things happen. So at one point, there is a, also a question of pragmatism. It is clear that the Algerian people want peaceful and radical change. And this should be delivered. That's not my my responsibility or my role to say that it should be delivered or not. But this is a clear and legitimate claim. At the same time, for pragmatic reasons, parts of the ancient regime will be in charge of delivering the transition. And this is something that, unfortunately, is uh, difficult to avoid.
0: Opposition parties in Algeria have been ineffectual in checking the power of the executive branch since nineteen eighty eight, and they seem to lack the standing to step in to ascertain that transition will be handled properly without undue influence of the current regime. They're viewed these parties as rightly or wrongly, they're viewed as part of the problem and not the solution. On the other hand, Algeria does not lack for credible historical and social leading figures that might be called upon to help steer the delicate uh, transition to a more transparent and accountable democratic Mm. system. Are there, as we speak, attempts or negotiations to recruit some of these independent figures that have remained untainted and
1: co-opted by the regime? Yes, uh, opponents of all kinds in political parties. And in associations, activists, human rights activists, socioeconomic activists have been pretty active and ready to uh, come up with some kind of platform for consensus. They have been actually uh, trying to do that for the last three, four, five years, five years at least, trying to come together and propose some kind of coherent platform for change, radical but peaceful change a way out of the crisis, know what they see is that there is an opening and there is a, a possibility for them to actually propose a change that would be meaningful and that could be a program that could be actually implemented. Now there's an opportunity for this, yes. Mm-hmm. There is an opportunity that is for the first time there and that they can touch and that they, that is also an emergency and there is a real demand some of them came together and proposed something very concrete on March 19th platform for change was published by a group of activists from various origins backgrounds some of them former islamists human rights activists Berberists, socialists and various trends of these like berberist oppositions some of them historically opposed to any kind of negotiation with the islamists some of them rather opposed to any kind of negotiation with the eradicator, with hard the liners in the regime. So there is a genuine attempt right now from these various members of the opposition or uh, activists to come together and propose something, a way out. But as always, the degree of fragmentation is such that it will take a lot of time to come up with something that makes sense with a concrete program and with, if you want, a a direction that can be a genuine alternative to the bureaucrats who are now managing the transition. And I feel that three months won't be enough.
0: Yes. So you mentioned something that's interesting. It was referring back to the terrible years of the civil war in the 1990s. And uh, you're saying some of these people and and certain Berberist or so-called Berberist parties will not talk to one of the extremes, one extreme being the the violent Islamists. And the other pole would be the hardliners within the regime who are eradicating the Islamists. Mm -hmm. So some of them are refusing to talk to the most violent factions. So that civil war is still very present in people's minds.
1: It's still a major split in the body politic of Algeria. Well actually what is interesting with this platform, released on march nineteenth, is that among the people who signed it, you'll find Mouradina, with a former leader of the Islamic Salvation Front, and Bel Abbas with the current leader of the Rally for Culture and Democracy. Right. And Bel Abbas and Mouradina are in a discussion and they show signs that they are ready to overcome the divide, overcome the legacy of the civil war and create a political discussion that is maybe agonist, but not purely antagonist, where the goal is not to destroy the enemy and we can live and discuss in the same polity and share a common citizenship or a common sense of uh, belonging. while. I think very different ideas, and this is something new. And and the fact that members of of the Islamic Salvation Front, and former eradicators or former supporters of this strategy of the regime, are now ready to speak in order to find a solution to the crisis.
0: So, in your assessment, three months will not suffice to bring about the transition that people are in Algeria demanding. Algeria is would be hard pressed to deconstruct and reconstruct in three months the the 57 years of autocracy and then failed
1: democracy? All of this takes time. And I feel that we, especially when we look a posteriori at the, the period of decolonization, we just underestimate what it takes to just change completely a system of domination. Transitioning from colonial rule to a free, independent, sovereign state takes a lot of time for this free independent sovereign state to be actually democratic it takes a lot of time we tend to forget that for the french state to become a liberal representative regime it took more than 80 years it took more than 80 years these transitions take a long time on revolutions they are not like magic moments the transition from tsarist russia to ussr didn't erase suddenly all the authoritarian structures characteristic of the Russian state. Soviet Russia is largely a continuation of the Tsarist state. Same authoritarianism, same form of violent policing. So my point is, all of this takes time. There is a political temporality. There are public discourses. There are also popular expectations. Everybody wants in a way, a return to normal. They want their expectations or claims meet as as soon as possible. But genuine transformation of the system of domination in Algeria will take a lot of time. And the the reason to be optimistic is that activists in Algeria have been fighting for so long that I think that they have shown their resilience. They have shown that they can uh, keep fighting and deliver an actual transition, even if it takes much more than three months since 1962 Algeria like most newly independent
0: Arab countries in the region those that were not monarchies Mm -hmm. uh, they've been dominated and ruled by the military this sounds like the best chance for Algeria to finally cut the umbilical cord Mm -hmm. and to try to arrive at more representative democratic system but following the terrible backlash from the Arab Spring in Syria in Egypt, in Bahrain, chaos in Libya and Yemen, can the Algerian military, unlike militaries in those other countries, finally become a real genuine professional army, strictly concerned with military affairs, like defending the physical integrity
1: of the nation? Obviously, as long as the army will be in control of its own budget, and this is the case in Algeria right now, the budget of the army is not controlled by the government, Well, the army will remain uh, largely autonomous and a political force, a political and economic force. So this is something that will be addressed during the period of transition. And I would not be surprised if it was like one of the main concerns of the military leaders right now, preserving their budget, preserving their interests. That makes sense. What we know for sure is that military leaders have no interest in a dramatization of the conflict they have no interest in a militarization of the crisis they have paid a huge price in terms of blood but also in terms of credibility in the 90s military leaders in algeria have no interest in following a path similar to egypt or to syria so that's forbid. (laughs) yeah yeah, Yeah. it's not only a question of being optimistic it's not wishful thinking Gaid Salah has been really putting Botafrika under pressure. So That's the chief
0: he, of staff of the military in Algeria, Salah,
1: yes. But the army could have intervened maybe two weeks ago. They have the, the means to end the crisis if they want to. They don't want to because it would be extremely costly. So the military, but while being obviously attached to uh, the protection of their own interests and their budget, also know the limits. They also know the limits and they also know the price to pay. What we have seen and what we uh, hear when we uh, listen to, the, for example, the former Islamists is that members of the FIS, the Islamic Salvation Front, learn that there is a price to pay when you enter in a revolutionary struggle with a police state and you're ready to use weapons. They learned that. Well, I'm pretty sure that the army learned the same kind of lesson. So everybody knows what can happen if you militarize the conflict. Everybody knows that this is not the right path for Algeria right now, and this will limit in a way, the influence of the military.
0: With the U.S. having finally completely, for the first time, really completely dropped the mask, the pretense of teaching the rest of the world about democracy, human rights and all that, with Trump at the helm saying, hey, anything goes. Today's paramount momentum seems to be against liberal democracy uh, worldwide. Do the Algerians have terrible timing or can they be the exception to the rule right now. They wouldn't be the only country. I mean, there's Sudan that's, that's mm-hmm. struggling. There's Malaysia just uh, overturned a terrible dictator. Uruguay, many small countries are actually swimming against the tide, it looks like. It looks a bit like the tale of the two cities, this being the worst of times and the best of times at the same time. But I do worry about the general paradigm right now of power elites worldwide deciding, hey, there's no more real need to pretend That we're worried about uh, human rights, it's not; it's no longer a requirement.
1: Mm. Yeah, I I have to say two things. First, I feel that if an Algerian uh, was listening to this show, and I mean, just heard you uh, using the word "small country" when speaking about Algeria, (laughs) they would would completely freak out. Uh, This is a great, great. A country full of history and glorious past. But beyond that... uh, (laughs) Thank you for correcting me.
0: I I agree (laughs) wholeheartedly. (laughs) The largest country in Africa, for one thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and Mm. that's important, Mm. at least for Algerians. Well, this is a a dark time, and at the same time, an historical period full of possibilities. Yes, it is true that the crisis of our liberal representative regimes led to... uh, what we can see right now in uh, the U.S., what we can see in the U.K., what we can see in France, because it's not glorious, what we can see in Central Europe or in Turkey, Russia. At the same time, weirdly, this discourse that was largely uh, hypocritical, uh, this discourse of democratization promoted by the U.S., the EU and other international actors, created some opportunities and the opportunities were real. The Algerians are right now using some of the spaces created by this discourse of democratization. So in a way, and I know that it's contradictory, but the flows of this process of democratization led to the uprisings in 2011 and to the uprising in Algeria right now. It's because the Algerian regime felt that they had to organize a phony election to legitimate Bouteflika that the Algerian people said enough is enough. Your phony democracy, we don't want it. So, what we see that people actually, at least in Algeria, they believe that this can work if it's done properly, and they know the difference between a fake, phony representation and a genuine popular representation. They want real representatives, and if they don't have this kind of representatives, they can do it by themselves. So, it shows that there is a discussion on representation that is going on, and that. Politics are not just about our leaders. They are not just about Erdogan, uh, Putin or Trump. And you have grassroots movements in Turkey, in the US, in France and in Algeria that are on a daily basis challenging the authoritarian reorientation of our liberal representative regimes. And it shows that this tension is in a way a tension about the meaning of representation worldwide. And yes, it's a dark time, but it's also a time where people are actually fighting for a form of representation that is genuine. They are fighting for a form of representation that is not just electing some members of the elite once every five years or four years and just like accepting this state of affairs. So the Algerians are really, I feel, making a statement that goes far beyond Algeria. It's an example, and it's a way to rethink the meaning of representation as something that is more direct, something that is more democratic. And for sure, what our liberal regimes have been doing over the last 20, 30 years is not that. It's not that. So it's a it's a real alternative, and a credible one.
0: Yes, this pro-democracy movement in Algeria is always compared with those that preceded it in other Arab countries, which certainly is relevant and interesting, but uh, hardly anyone mentions, at least in this country, um, the yellow vest movement as an interesting coincidence, Mm -hmm. which is happening at the same time in France and started even before the Algerian movement. Not to equate the two or to exaggerate the connections between the two, but Algerians are definitely very much attuned to what happens in France not just the Arab neighbors. Any thoughts about the parallel and coincidence of these two movements in, in Algeria and France? That's,
1: that's extremely interesting to think of. I, I feel that if there is a parallel, it's in the nature of the state. The state in France has been increasingly authoritarian, and it's no rule by a technocracy that has a very pejorative uh, opinion of its own people. And somebody like Emmanuel Macron uh, has said repeatedly things that are extremely violent about the, the, the French people. And when I hear Macron sometimes I think, well, this could be Selal or this could be Uyahia. This could be one of these former prime ministers in Nigeria who have been ousted by the crowd. So there is there is a parallel. Or uh, Marie
0: Antoinette, for that matter, <laughs> yeah, it sounds okay. a little bit like Marie Antoinette.
1: This is the same kind of, of contempt for the population. The thing is that for Marie Antoinette, if you want, it's kind of normal she's she's a queen, she comes from Austria, she has no link whatsoever with the French people. and this is something that is widely acknowledged in the ancient regime. in two thousand and nineteen, we live in a, in a world where democracy is at least a widely shared paradigm, people understanding differently, but it would be impossible for Putin to say, I'm completely different from my people. I have nothing to do with the Russian people. Putin could never say that. He's not an aristocrat. So to come back to France and Algeria, there is this contempt, there is this violence of the bureaucracy, of the technocracy. There is this economic restructuring. There is a police state that draws on a state of exception that is never ending in the name of the war on terror. In both cases, in both cases, the main difference, if you think about it, is in the movement itself, is in the difference between the gilets jaunes and what the Algerians have done. I'm not against the gilets jaunes per se, the yellow vest, I'm not against their, their, their claims or their revendications, but the main difference is that the Algerian, Algerian protesters were able to defeat their police state by drawing on a form of self-organized nonviolence a form of self-discipline that is absolutely remarkable and almost unique. And you can see with the yellow vest in France that French people who are usually presented as people that is used to protesting, they don't have the same discipline. They don't have the same understanding of the stakes. They don't have the same understanding of the nature of their own state. And this is the main difference. Algerians, I feel, were completely aware of the real nature of their state. And understanding this knowledge, is what allowed them to defeat the police state and what gave them these preliminary victories in this revolutionary process.
0: That was a good comparison and contrast, but do you feel there's any symbiotic relationship between the two, that they're kind of watching each other and, and sort of encouraging one
1: another subconsciously? Subconsciously, I don't know. I don't think that there is any kind of symbiotic relationship. There is clearly some kind of common temporality, but the forms, the practices are extremely different. I think that the the main commonality is clearly the state, the structure of the state, the discourse of the state and the expectations, the popular expectations when it comes to what the state should do in terms of redistributing wealth, for example. But when it comes to the actual movement, I feel that what is happening right now in Algeria is... Truly exceptional.
0: Yeah, the reason I I ask these questions is I remember back in 2011 seeing unspoken, and even not analyzed by many people in in the media, uh, connections between what was happening in the Arab world Mm -hmm. and what was happening here with the Occupy movements. Mm -hmm. They were treated as if they were completely separate, but I I was seeing some connections
1: there. Yes, I I feel that. You're right, uh, at least from the, the Algerian perspective. I should, I should emphasize the fact that Algerian protesters know very well how global politics work. Mm. So their performance is not only about Algeria. It's also a performance for the world. So from this perspective, they speak to uh, a French audience and a global audience. So this movement is clearly uh, inserted in a global in a global environment, especially in the media. Then, in terms of circulation, there are forms of solidarity between Sudan and Algeria, between Morocco and Algeria, and also, obviously, between France and Algeria. That makes sense. Algeria is globalized. There is a huge diaspora. So there are connections, there are forms of solidarity.
0: And and there's also a huge contingent of Algerians and France
1: Obviously, yeah. So that creates that creates a link. I know that many uh, Franco-Algerians or binationals living in Europe went back to Algeria because for them it's 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 a moment to express a, a very important part of their identity and to be proud of this. half or maybe more, maybe less, I don't know. Part of what they are politically, and this creates obviously a form of. I don't know if it's a symbiosis, but there is strong relationship between the south of the Mediterranean and the north.
0: And what you just said about um, Algerians performing for the world also makes sense to me. This is, after all, a country we always joke about ourselves that we're trilingual illiterates, (laughs) if you please. Not just just illiterate in one language, not two, but three. Uh, Mm -hmm. Those three being French and Berber and Arabic or Algerian Arabic, but really you, you saw throughout these weeks, of the past six weeks, signs in three languages, including some in English. So they are playing this also to the international uh, audience out there.
1: Absolutely. They are playing this, this performance is part of something that is obviously globalized, and at the same time, if we come back to the issue of the language, this meme of Yetnauga, uh, the, 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 this uh, Algerian young man interviewed in the street by a journalist speaking and, and she Fosha. Fosha, which is classical he, Arabic, yes. We have mm. Classical Arabic. And she asked him to explain or to, to, to speak about what is going on and he, start, he responds in uh, Darja. Algerian a dialect of Arabic, yes. Absolutely. And his reaction is, is amazing because he says this is our Darja, we don't speak Fosha. So, if you want, even if Algerians are performing for the world, this is a country with a very strong sense of pride, national pride, a, a nationalist tradition, a sovereignist tradition. So this performance for the world is also a way to reclaim some kind of national pride. So this, this is not, if you want, some kind of naive internationalism.
0: Yes. And speaking of languages, the multiplicity of languages in Algeria, the humor is also a big part of this movement, which is delightful and a way to disarm any potential violence on the part of the authorities. Um, Wonderful jokes and wonderful, really witty signs. Mm -hmm. One of them (laughs) sticks out in my mind when the police uh, occasionally would would, uh, train the water cannons on on the crowds. There would be signs popping up naturally saying, Hey, how about some shampoo? You know, we, we need shampoo
1: too, not just water. <laughs> that's that's. This is really impressive, uh, but I feel that there is a continuity here. Liz Perigo, a scholar, an American scholar, wrote some amazing piece on the place of humor in Algeria during the dark decade. It has been a way to cope with a very dark present with a catastrophic present in the 90s, and know it's a way to cope with something that is in a way, uh, marvelous, it's still very dangerous and very scary what is happening because it's a crisis. But at the same time, this sense of humor is a way to celebrate this moment of collective liberation. And uh, that's another exceptional aspect of the Algerian mobilization. It's also
0: a very powerful means of communication because it really, literally disarms a lot of the hubris that is thrown at the Algerians. Mm-hmm. It's a way of uh, winking at one another, even in spite of uh, political differences. It's and a, it's a uniting uh, device, I think. It, it, it's a wonderful presence, as you said, throughout the darkest time of Algeria, even. During the War of Independence, people were just constantly cracking jokes. It's a very mm-hmm. funny uh, group of people. The Algerians, they have this way of uh, diffusing um, ad- yeah. adversity
1: <laughs> through yeah. humor. Yeah, uh, dry, absurd sense of humor that is difficult to understand at the very beginning, but that is pretty hilarious. Uh, and just to um, develop on, on this aspect, what, what is interesting, I feel that humor is a way to speak to the world, as we have said before. So, and it's something we know in the U.S. when you when you protest, you spend a lot of time on your signs because you want your sign to be seen to circulate on Twitter. So this is something that Algerian protesters uh, took in consideration, uh, preparing signs where they mention. Chuck Norris, for example. So it's, it's a way to speak, to appropriate a globalized sense of humor, to uh, integrate it in their own political context in order to speak to the world. And at the same time, humor and irony are a deadly weapon for any kind of authority. And Bouteflika's authority was already pretty weak. I think that over the last six years, jokes have killed it. They have killed the president.
0: I think it was George Orwell who said, every joke is a miniature revolution or something
1: like that. George Orwell was a very smart guy.
0: (laughs) So uh, my last question for you is that much has been made of the peaceful reappropriation of public space over the last few weeks in Algeria, something that was observed also in Seattle in 1999 and Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Oakland in 2011 and any number of movements since, peaceful uh, movements. These movements have the advantage of being headless and therefore Mm -hmm. difficult to decapitate. But they Mm -hmm. also have, at the same time, a hard time putting forward a cohesive strategy or political agenda. And you've kind of briefly addressed this today. Tell us a little bit how you see this working itself
1: out as we speak in Algeria. It's difficult to to predict the future. It's impossible to predict the future. What I see right now, what I feel is that at one point, uh, it's up to the ruling elites and the aspiring ruling elites to to meet the expectations, to to be uh, able to represent their people the way it should be. And clearly the bar is pretty high. And if there is one thing that will, I think, inspire the, the political actors to come up with a responsible solution, it's the way in which the population has been mobilized for the last seven weeks. I've been talking with some activists and what is pretty clear is that there is a sense of uh, of duty, they have to deliver because the people has done something so amazing that there is a sense of responsibility of duty. They have to do it. So I believe that at least among the circles of responsible activists, political opponents, uh, human rights uh, activists, especially, something will come up, something that makes sense. And I would not be surprised if it's organized around the figure of uh, Mustafa Bushashi the former head of the, the Algerian League for the Defense of Human Rights, who is one of these responsible, relatively charismatic figures that people can trust. And this is, I feel, a, a way out of the crisis and the potential path toward a meaningful representative system. So, so you
0: see the current regime uh, being peacefully forced into... Accepting some of these social society elements into the transition
1: uh, process. Well, they, they, they don't really have the choice at this point. They have, they have been defeated twice over the last three times, over the last seven uh, weeks. First, they had to accept um, uh, mass protest. Then they had to accept to uh, delay and then cancel the election. Then they had to abandon Bouteflika. Three defeats in a row. When you start a war and you, you lose three battles, you will have to make concessions. You will have to make concessions. So they are going to, to make concessions. And among these concessions, I mean, integrating members of the so called civil society, or I would say uh, non discredited political figures, is a necessity. And they will not find civilian figures in the ruling FLN or RND, the historical ruling parties, because these parties are completely discredited, so they will have to find these figures somewhere else. And, I mean, a good thing for Algeria is that these people exist. Yes, the political field and political parties were largely discredited, but some politicians were, I mean, decent people with an expertise, with an ability to propose coherent ideas and coherent discourses, and yes, these people exist, and I think that the regime has the duty and is in a position where they don't have the choice. They will have to integrate some of them in the government, in the power structure. And again, I would not be surprised if uh, Mustafa Bouchachi and other figures of this human rights activism are uh, part of the, the solution. Because they
0: have not been tainted, they have not been co-opted by, by the regime at any point. Yeah,
1: yeah and they have, they have also always advocated for peace especially in the 90s. So, I mean, the thing with a human rights activist like Bushashi that you cannot say this guy was a terrorist or this guy was an eradicator. He is clearly somebody who has always been in favor of democracy and peace in Algeria. So how can you discredit this kind of person? It would be difficult. This is probably where the solution is. And this is also a trajectory that we have seen in Tunisia. Monsef Marzouki was also a former human rights activist, the first president of Tunisia after the revolution.
0: Yes. And at the same time, it seems that more and more grassroots pressure on the media is also affecting positive change there with, mm-hmm. with a better chance for for transparency.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, but at this point, since everything that has happened over the last seven weeks was positive, I know that we need to be cautious. We need to be skeptical. But I feel that wishful thinking and optimism is the best way to give a chance to the Asian people to actually realize a genuine, complete, and an ambitious revolution.